Before we get to this week's Bible passage, I want to mention that last week, uh, many of you were here, some of you were not. Last week, as we opened God's Word, um, John Stein was up here teaching us from God's Word, and we saw a turning point in the life of a blind man, didn't we? Did we? There was an incredible turning point in the life of a blind man. Jesus laid hands to heal this blind man. And the first time Jesus laid his hands on the blind man, the blind man's response was, I I see people, but they look like trees walking. He hadn't quite had his vision restored, but there was more. Jesus gave him a second touch. He laid his hands on him again. And then God's word tells us that the man saw everything clearly. So John, you know, had us think about this last Sunday. Why the second touch, you know? He was certainly right. Why did Jesus use a second touch? He was certainly right. It wasn't that Jesus suddenly, you know, forgot how to do healings. It wasn't that he suddenly was lacking in power. He, I think Jesus was working in this way intentionally. John pointed out that we can liken Jesus' second touch on the blind man to the second touch that his disciples needed in order to see him more clearly. And the second touch that many of us, myself included, need so that we can continue to see who Jesus is more clearly and what God's kingdom looks like. It is a turning point for us where we see that God, we we see that God helps us begin to see, begin to follow him, begin to live for him, but he has more in store. There's more for us. And uh, as we open our Bibles, and you can do that if you want to Mark chapter 8, we're also in a turning point in our study of the gospel of Mark. We're in the middle of the eighth chapter. We're going to continue to teach God's word all the way through the book of Mark. And we come to a turning point in the book of Mark because up until this point, Mark has been describing the life and ministry of Jesus kind of centered around the region of, of the Sea of Galilee, and his, Jesus' ministry has been sort of focused geographically in that area. And now as we study, continue to study, there's a turning point in the Gospel of Mark today where Jesus in some ways physically and symbolically turns his face to head to Jerusalem, knowing what's in store at the end of his earthly journey, knowing that he is headed to the cross to be our Savior. Uh, As Mark now continues to tell the life and ministry of Jesus, he is journeying toward uh, God's good purposes for him at Jerusalem. And so that's where we find ourselves, his 12 disciples and us, beginning to see who Jesus is and what his plan is, but not really fully understanding the way Jesus wants to work and what God's kingdom looks like. And so we need his second touch. We need to go from that turning point to realizing that there's more in store. So I want us to see, I want us to taste and see that the Lord is good this morning. You'll see sometimes I get a little fired up up here. Sometimes I smile a lot. Sometimes I post random videos on Facebook and tell you how excited I am about this this sermon. Because I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good because this is what is true of my life, that God has rescued me from sin and death and he continues to show me, he continues to help me see, taste and see that the Lord is good. And so I'm stoked about today. I'm excited about today. I want to see what God has in store for you and what he has for me 
as we ask him to show us what more he has for us. So, open your Bible, Mark chapter 8. We're going to start at verse 27 in a moment. And uh, as you turn there, uh, let me pray for us. Father God, we need you this morning to be our teacher. I pray that you would help us to keep our finger physically in your word here, looking to you for answers. I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to your word so that we would hear from you. And Lord, while I have worked to prepare for this morning, God, I pray that you would help me to get out of the way. And as the psalmist writes, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. God, would your will be done this morning? Would you show us how you're working in our lives and how you're calling us to more? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 27. Buckle up. Verse 27, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, Some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and the others that you're one of the prophets. And Jesus asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. This is a turning point for the disciples. This is a turning point for the disciples because because Peter correctly professes that Jesus is the Christ. Now, just to make sure there's not confusion, sometimes we refer to Jesus as Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. Jesus is his name. Christ is a title. So when Peter says, you are the Christ, what he's saying is, you are the long-awaited rescuer, the one who has been foretold, the one who is going to come, the, 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 the Messiah, the anointed one that was foretold that he was coming to rescue and save God's people. So Peter, this is a turning point for Peter and the disciples as, they, as he correctly professes that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited rescuer. Verse 30 says, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him because Jesus is, is turned toward Jerusalem now, but it's not quite time for confrontation with those who are against him. And so, Now we continue here at verse 31, and Jesus is going to give us the picture of what kind of rescuer he is. What what does the Messiah, what has the Messiah come to do? Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And then after three days, rise again. And Jesus said this plainly. And then can you imagine this? Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him, to sharply disagree with the God-man Jesus himself. Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. And we don't get the details, but elsewhere, the story is written also in Matthew. And basically, Peter is saying, no, Lord, this won't happen to you. He's picturing a different kind of rescuer. 
And so when Jesus begins to describe himself as the suffering servant, Peter says, no way, this won't happen to you. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Whoa. Ouch. If we're following along here, if we're, if we're following along for Peter, if we're even rooting for Peter in this moment, who had this turning point and, and clearly professed Jesus and accurately as the promised rescuer, if we're, if we're following along with Peter, this is a cringeworthy moment. I kind of feel for Peter here because it seems understandable, actually, that he would be confused here. The common understanding at his time would have been uh, to think of God's kingdom. Jesus had been talking about God's kingdom. Jesus had been, told, had been telling them, I am bringing about God's kingdom. And for the people, for Peter and the disciples and others, they were hearing a kingdom in political terms. They were, they were th- picturing something different. They had assumed that the Messiah would be a heroic leader who would overthrow the enemies of God's people, gather his people together, and set up an earthly kingdom. Now, we can talk about how many of those things will happen eventually. But at this time, Jesus' first arrival on this earth 2,000 years ago, this is not what kind of rescuer he was. Jesus' ministry did bring about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is upon us. The rule and reign of God is being established. But Jesus explains the kind of Messiah that he is to be a suffering servant. And this isn't exactly what Peter and others had in mind. But Jesus is pretty upset here, isn't he? Did you hear those strong words? Jesus is putting Peter in the company with Satan, Jesus seems a little bit more upset than as if Peter just had some simple misunderstanding. Jesus is fiercely adamant that Peter is way off. There was a turning point in Peter recognizing Jesus as the Christ, but Jesus' sharp rebuke here, I think, points out that there's more for Peter to understand, more for the disciples to understand, and more for all of us to see more clearly about Jesus and about what the kingdom of God is like. I think that um, we, like Peter, sometimes think Jesus, um, we like to picture Jesus more as conquering king than suffering servant. I think we, like Peter, uh, need to stop measuring Jesus' quote-unquote success by our own human standards. I think we, like Peter, sometimes emphasize the wrong things. We desire to see the earth, our culture, our lives be a certain way, perhaps our way. And and in in doing that, we perhaps miss and, and, and lose the desire to see God's kingdom come. I think we, like Peter, often uh, impose our own expectations on what Jesus' mission should look like, on how the church operates, on on what Jesus is up to in our world, on how we as Christians live for him. And when we do those things, like Peter, it's because we are not setting our minds on the things of God, 
but on the things of men, on the things of this earth. I I alluded to this a minute ago, but I, I need you to know yet again and again, the greatest turning point in my life, bar none, is receiving the gift of salvation offered freely to me through Jesus Christ. That is the greatest turning point that you or I could ever have. Forgiven of sin, saved from the death we deserve, given a new heart, life now, and life eternal. I've experienced that turning point of my heart being regenerated, being made new. I was once dead and lost and stuck in sin and darkness. And in receiving the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, I have been made new. And that's a turning point. And maybe you have experienced that turning point in your life, and maybe you haven't. But if you have, I want you to know my heart as a pastor is to make sure that we don't miss There's even more in store. That as if that wasn't great enough good news, that God continues to work in and through us. That he continues to work his good and his purposes in us. That he calls us to more. And and so I want us to think for a minute, what what if the time and energy we spend on the things of men, the things of earth, the things that distract us, What if our blinders are on earthly pursuits? What if that same time and energy was used to learn to walk by God's Spirit, to hear Him in our lives, and to really live in our actions and our words for Jesus every day? What if our time and energy that we spend on earthly pursuits was instead channeled toward loving God more and loving others the way he does. I want you, I'm going I'm to give you a minute. I'm going I'm to be silent for a minute. And I want you to ask God about that. Would you ask God where you need to shift mindset from things of, of men, things of the earth, to what his purposes are? The reason that we need to ask ourselves that, the reason that I need to ask myself that, where I need to shift my mindset from, from the things of earth, the things of men, what, what, my, what my preferences are, to what God's will is, is because Jesus rebuked Peter for making his own plans instead of seeking and trusting in God's plans. And Peter just got rebuked pretty hard. I want to learn from that. Peter, Peter's the inspiration for the Gospel of Mark, by the way. We learned this several weeks ago. The Gospel of Mark is written by a young man named John Mark, but he's largely getting all of this from Peter. And you know what? Peter could have not included that part. But Peter did because he wants us to learn from it. I want to learn from Peter. Jesus rebuked Peter because, Jesus, or because Peter was making his own plans instead of seeking and trusting God's plans. And, and you know what? This is crazy. This was crazy to Peter, and sometimes we still don't get it. The things of God include a suffering servant. The things of God included an unexpected rescue plan. Jesus' death. A king not who conquered, but who laid down his life for us. And so, if that's what Jesus has done for us, 
we've begun to see him clearly. But I want to ask him this morning for the second touch to open our eyes, to continue to open eyes, that we can see him even more clearly. As we come to grips with that unexpected rescue plan, we followers of Jesus need to see that there's more that Jesus calls us to. Following Jesus comes with high demands and high costs. If you're here this morning hoping for me to say, yeah, follow Jesus, everything will be great. Yeah, come to church once a week and hang out for an hour. Everything will be great. Jesus says, there's a turning point. And then I have more for you. Look back in your, got your finger in the text still. Now we're going to go back to the passage here, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Why does Jesus call us to deny ourselves and take up the cross? Let's see if you remember this. I haven't done this in a few weeks. Because followers of Jesus do what? (laughs) So why does Jesus call us to deny ourselves and take up our cross? Because followers of Jesus follow Jesus. Because followers of Jesus imitate Jesus. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross because that's what he did. Denied his own preferences and took up God's purposes. And you know how I know that? Because if you remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus was crucified, the night before he was executed for us, In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before, he cried out to his father, to God, and said, Father, remove this cup from me. In other words, I don't know if this plan sounds that great. In other words, my self-will might be to not go through with this. But here's Jesus denying himself and taking up God's purposes, taking up the cross, is Jesus saying, but not my will your will. Not my self-will, not my preferences, not what's most convenient for me, but what God wants to do. Not your will, not my will, but yours be done, Jesus says. So we're called to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life, Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it. This is one of those verses where if you read it really fast, you're going to go, huh? I did. And so then I sat down this week and I got really slow and, you know, helped myself figure it out. Verse 35 says, whoever would save his life will lose it. And this is where I say, we don't want to be a loser. This is the part of the verse where we don't want to be a loser. There's going to be another part of the verse in a minute where we do want to be a loser. You know, what is it? Out of the forehead. This part, we don't want to be a loser. Here, it says that saving our life, that, what Jesus is saying here is, is clinging to the things of this life. If we're going to save our life, if we're going to cling to the earthly things, if we're going to live a self-centered life focused on, on our things and what we want, those who do that will forfeit real, true life, new life, transformed life, life eternal with Jesus. Don't be that kind of loser, friends. Okay? Clinging to your own self-focused desires. Don't be 
that kind of loser. But the verse continues, verse 35 continues, but whoever loses his life for my sake, whoever loses his life for my sake, for Jesus' sake and the gospel's sake, will save it. What's the, um, what's the expression? Finders, keepers. Finders, keepers, losers, weavers. Not according to God's word. Here we see that losers are keepers. This is where you want to be a loser. This is the part of verse 35 where I want to urge you to be a loser. Give your life. Live your life. Actions, words, deeds. Lose your life for the sake of Jesus and the sake of the good news of Jesus. It's so worth it. It doesn't look like earthly success. It doesn't always look like what we had in mind when we set out this life. But give your life, lose your life for the sake of Jesus. Instead of being focused on selfish desires, as we love God and we love others, we gain, we keep, we gain true, real, rich, meaningful, joyful life in the now and life eternal with him forever. Losers are keepers. I want to tell you about one of my favorite losers. My grandpa was a loser. (laughs) My grandpa died about four years ago at age of 89. um, After 60 plus years as a pastor of gospel ministry. My grandpa had three sons, my dad and, and then his two younger brothers. My grandpa was a pastor for 60 plus years. My two uncles are pastors. So in some ways, I say I'm sort of third generation preacher. And I want to tell you why I, I think my grandpa was a loser, because he devoted his life to serving Jesus for the sake of the gospel. And you know why? I, you know what? I want to tell you now. You know, early in his life, he had a turning point of being rescued by Jesus. Are you with me? Like I described about myself, the greatest turning point in my life and in my grandpa's life, the greatest turning point would be receiving the gift of salvation that God offers you and I freely through Jesus Christ. But you know why I know that my grandpa knew there was more? It wasn't just... It wasn't just getting into the club, so to speak, long ago. It wasn't just becoming a Christian. It wasn't just crossing. Not only was it the greatness of being forgiven and crossing from death to life and from darkness to light, but my my grandpa was a loser. He gave his life. He gave his all. He devoted himself. And I know it because uh, here's one, one, one way I know it. The Bible that I'm holding that I preach from every week is my grandpa's, one of his last ones. And on the screen, I want to show you a page. This was a Bible he used in the last couple years of his life. After 60 plus years of ministry and after probably 65, 70 plus of knowing Jesus. But look what he did to his Bible. Can you see it? He was underlining it. He was putting question marks. He was, he was writing prayers in the margins. Because he wasn't satisfied where he was. 
he knew that Jesus was calling him to more, and he wanted to be a loser for the glory of Jesus and the sake of the gospel. So let's finish the passage, verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, to do stuff that we want to do as humans, to do earthly stuff? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me, Jesus says, and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Why such intense language here? Why, why such intense language there? Friends, I love you too much not to keep telling you all the time. The, the significant language there, the intense language there, Jesus' passion there is because the gospel of Jesus, the good news that we are stuck in sin, but that God loved us anyway and sent Jesus to come live, die, and be raised again so that we might have life. That's the gospel, right? The gospel has life and death ramifications. It does. This isn't just something that you add to your life. It isn't just something that, you know, we just kind of do because it's convenient or because it's what we've always done or because we want to add a little Jesus to our life, or because I'm hoping for a nugget of wisdom. We, Jesus speaks here so clearly, and he rebukes Peter so strongly, because the gospel has life and death ramifications. Our friends, our family, our neighbors, our co-workers, our fellow students who are living apart from Jesus, some living apart from Jesus, perhaps sitting right next to you in this very room this morning. I don't know. I'm not God. God knows. But, but our friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, etc., who are living apart from Jesus are headed toward an incredibly sad but true reality of spending life, eternity, in hell. Apart from the loving presence of a gracious God who loves them desperately. But Jesus offers that greatest turning point that I'm talking about. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus offers the greatest turning point that any of us could ever receive, that any of us could ever experience in our life, is receiving the gift of salvation available through Jesus Christ. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to, to earn it. We don't have to match up to his righteous standards. We don't have to be a good person. We don't have to go to church at a certain number of Sundays per month. The greatest turning point we could experience is receiving the gift of salvation, life now and life forever with God. So the demands then, the demands then, the costs that come with following Jesus, even suffering that comes with following Jesus is worth it. It isn't always the way we want to hear good news. But I got to tell you, it's worth it. The gospel is good news. We were stuck. We were dead. And Christ made us alive again. So Jesus has more for us. Me too. I'm still growing. I'm still learning to lose my life 
for his purposes and not live my life according to my own purposes, according to earthly things. And, and by the way, I knew, I'm using myself as an example, and you know, I use my grandpa as an example, but you don't have to be a full-time vocational pastor to lose your life for the sake of the gospel. Are you with me? This is a calling for every follower of Jesus to lose our lives, to give our all to, for his purposes and his glory. So I do want to just take a couple minutes and, and have a little bit of a family meeting and say, okay, well, how, how, how does this apply to us? What, what, God, what might God be calling us to do? What does it look like in our church family for me, for you, for us as a whole to be losers? How does it look for us to love God more fully, to pursue him more actively, to grow in him more and more, not to just be satisfied with where we're at in our spiritual life, but to know that he has so much more. And what does it look like for us, for you, for me, for us as a church family, to learn to love others with God's love, to see people around us the way he sees them, for us to live our lives in service to others for his good purposes. And I, and I got to tell you, um, as a church leader, this seems really convenient that I, that I would want this for you, but I got to tell you, this has been my experience that one of the best ways I have found to grow in my relationship with Jesus and in learning to love others the way God does is as I serve and give of my time and ask God to take my passions and my gifts and my spiritual gifts and my skills and use them in our church family or out in our world for his purposes. One of my best suggestions to you from pastor to people, my heart for you to grow and know all that Christ has for you. I, would, I couldn't encourage you more that serving, giving to church family and to, to fellow Christians and to people that need Jesus is one of the best ways that we can lose our lives for Jesus, one of the best ways that we can grow. And so um, some of you, it's time to start serving. Some of you, it's time to move from that entry-level serving position you're doing to trust God more, to step out in faith, to take on a new role here within our church family or, or perhaps uh, something he calls you to in, in Dallas and people that need to hear Jesus or in our region or across the world in Uganda or, 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 or taking God's love to Texas or to Florida. But we need to start. We need to serve. We need to look for what God's calling us to. We need to be ready to step up for him. And, uh, and that could look a lot of different ways. But the Great Commission is that, we, that God uses us to make disciples, to help other people meet and follow Jesus. And so instead of just knowing the Great Commission, do we participate in the Great Commission? We want to give our financial gifts. We want to pray for the Hurricane Harvey and Irma victims, as, and we want to pray for those crisis response efforts and recovery that will be going on for months. But maybe some of you will go. We'll go and help. We want to recognize needs around us here in Dallas, people that are not like us but that need Jesus. We want to recognize that. That's a start. But maybe God's calling you to respond to the needs you see and to serve the, least, the less fortunate, to serve those that are on the fringes of our community, to serve those that, that don't yet know Jesus. I need you to be 
thankful for and praying for our many volunteers in our church family who give up their time and their energy to help this church function. I need you to be thankful for and praying for them. And some of you become one. Uh, Jump in. Serve Jesus by serving others. Our church is no different than many churches in our, in our, in our country. Um, oftentimes, a small percentage of folks do a large percentage of, of the helping, of the serving, of the giving. It's just, it's the way it is, but, but do we want it to be that way? Might we want to listen to God's call for more? so that it's not a small percentage doing a large percentage of the work, but maybe a high percentage of the body doing the work, and thus the whole many hands make light work becomes reality, right? And this is not Pastor Derek just making this up because it's convenient for me and the staff to hand more volunteers. This is me teaching you a biblical principle that the New Testament calls the church the body of Christ, the church is the body of Christ and the church is best built up and is most glorifying to God when each part serves its purpose. And so when a part is sidelined, when a part is is not doing his or her share, when a part is aside, the, the body is hindered. The church family is hindered. And there's so many ways to jump in, big and small, Some of you need to jump in in a small way. And some of you, it'll be in this church family. For others of you, it'll be out in our community or across the world. There's not one size fits all for all of you. You need to ask God what serving him and glorifying him in your life looks like. But there's so many ways that it could be. It could be something as simple as the fact that when we dismiss at the end of our time this morning, I want there to be 10 minutes that go by that the chairs stay right there. And then after 10 minutes... We need God's people to put away the chairs so that Faith Christian School can use this room. There's a simple way that one body, many parts, makes ministry, makes serving easy. Um, We need you um, to consider uh, serving in our church family in, in many areas, and I can't possibly list them all. But you know what? As God is doing exciting things in our church family these days, an increasing number of children are coming at 9 a.m. during our Sunday school hour and at 10.30 a.m. while we worship. An increasing number of children are coming, which means that we need an increasing number of people to love and serve them. We also want to take care of them in a really appropriate way. We want to have multiple leaders in there so everybody's safe and protected. Uh, This is doable. Some of you are going, oh man, kids are not for me. Or some of you are going, I've been there, I've done that. This is doable. This isn't scary stuff like you have to be a teacher. This is Ask God, can I help with my passions and my gifts? What, how, what, God, what might God want me to do? This is, this is doable stuff. This isn't scary stuff. And, and, it's, not, and it's not you're signing your life away. Uh, my good friend Debbie, who's on our staff team leading our children's ministry, she is setting it up. She is looking for a large team of volunteers who will serve every Sunday for one month and then be off three months and then do it again for one month. Are you with me? and then be off three months, that's not signing your life away, friends. That's doable, okay? Um, and here's, the, here's what I want to hear. This, okay, I gave you some details just now about our needs. And we, and we have needs in, in our youth ministry as well. Junior high, high school could use mentors. 
Nothing fancy, just people who want to be used by Jesus to love students, to be in their lives and to care about what they're doing. So I can tell you logistics about our needs, but let me tell you something else that's even more important. The heart of our needs. The heart is this. I just heard this this week, that if, do we want our kids and grandkids to have a lifelong faith in Jesus? Are we concerned that sometimes after high school, that doesn't happen? Okay, what I learned this week, or I was reminded of this week, is that one of the best indicators of students having a lifelong faith in Jesus is, having, is the more adults that love Jesus that are in their life. Are you with me? The more godly people that are investing in their lives, parents, grandparents, but also church family, Sunday school teachers, etc., the more people they have in their lives, the higher indicator that they will have a lifelong love for and serving Jesus. Do we want that? I do. I do, for my kids and for yours. And so this isn't just us saying, hey, we need help. This is, this is what God is doing. And this is how God is going to help our kids to know and follow him their whole lives. And I want to say one more thing. No matter how you jump in and serve, whether it's seemingly small or whether it's some big responsibility, I want you to know that it's critical to the mission. When one of you stands in the nursery and rocks a baby, when one of you changes a baby's diaper, you might think, this isn't that important. I say, yes, it is. Because you're letting a mom, who knows, maybe a single mom who's never met Jesus, come and sit here and hear us worship Jesus and hear the word of God taught. So do you understand me that no matter how you serve, whether seemingly small or seemingly huge, you are a critical part of the mission of this church family. God is working in and through all of us for his glory and his purposes. Now, I got to address this because I want to always be really careful. You know, I feel like the passage is clear that we have turning points and yet Jesus calls us to a high demand of following him. There's costs, there's demands that go with following Jesus. But I have to be really careful anytime we come near this because some of you right now just hear a longer list of things to do. Some of you are, are, are burdened unintentionally. I wasn't trying to do that, but some of you are burdened by, ah, uh, I'm not enough. I'm not doing enough. I, I, God doesn't love me unless I volunteer, so I better go sign up. I don't want that for you. That's not what this is about. We don't want you to do more, try harder, serve, give of your money, give of your time because you feel guilty or because you think you need to earn God's love because, friends, guess what? You don't. You don't. That's not how salvation works. That's not how God works. That's not how his love for you works. You don't have to earn it. But there's more. We know that serving is a great way to grow in loving God and loving others. Our prayer for you, my prayer for you, is that we would recognize all that Jesus has done for us, his life, death, and resurrection, giving us life now and life eternal. My prayer for you is that we would recognize what Jesus has done and that that would prompt us, not out of guilt or responsibility, but out of an overflowing thankfulness for his rescue, that we would want to share his love and good news with others. Does that make sense? So let me, um, let me invite you to stand now.
as, as I wrap up, I'm going to say just a couple more things. And as you stand, the worship team can come and get in, in place. And I have just a couple of more really important things for us to hear. This, you know what? This is important. This is not a worry of mine. This is not a frustration of mine or our leaders or our staff that we need more volunteers. This is just me being excited to see what God's going to do about it. I'm dead serious. Because God's up to cool stuff. And this problem seems big to us. The number of volunteers that Debbie needs in children's ministry seems like a big, scary number. I'll be honest. But it's so easy for God. It doesn't catch him by surprise. So we're just, Debbie's excited. I'm excited. We're just waiting to watch what God does to help our church family continue forward. And here's what I got to leave you with, because again, you can't misunderstand that you need to do stuff in order for God to love you. So let me remind you on the screen of Ephesians 2. It is by grace you have been saved, friends. It is by God's action, not your action, that you've been saved. Are you with me? It's not about your works. It's about what Jesus has already done. Your salvation, God's love for you has demonstrated that he sent Jesus to live and die. We're not saved by our efforts or how hard we try or whether we match up. We are saved by God's grace. If you need Jesus this morning, if you're, if, if you're apart from Christ and you know that you can't live this life without him, all you do is you entrust yourself to Jesus. You say, I hear you, God. You're offering a free gift of salvation through Jesus. I need it. I receive it. That's it. There's no earning. There's no striving. But this is the cool thing about this, this verse that's on the screen. It's, it's not only his grace that saves us at one point in our lives. If you're a follower of Jesus, his grace saves us. But it's his grace that continues to save us and transform us and carry us. And so that very next verse says that we're his workmanship, that we're created for good works. Does it say you're saved by good works? Does it say you're saved by good works? No, you're not saved by good works, but you're saved by his grace. And once he saves you, you're saved for good works, to display him and to proclaim his goodness. So he rescues us out of his grace. And yet what he rescues us for is to live for him. The same, here's an author I read this week, the same Jesus who makes unreasonable and impossible demands on us is the same Jesus who sympathizes with our weakness and he patiently endures our selfishness. Friends, if his demands are high and lifted up, his mercy, his grace is as wide as the east is from the west. So he wants to do it with you. He wants to carry you in what he calls you to. He helps us along the way. He trains us. He leads us. He supplies our needs. He understands when we take two steps forward and three steps back. He makes demands, not so that we have to earn his love. He makes demands because he loves you. He makes demands. He calls you to more because he wants us to know and love and enjoy him more fully. I want to taste and see that the Lord is good every day. And as a pastor, as someone who loves each of you, I want to see you Taste and see that the Lord is good, not just yesterday, not just years ago, but every day and this week and this month and into all that God has for us. 
So Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. And it, and it sounds tough, and it doesn't necessarily sound like what we had in mind, but he has our good in mind. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me. And he doesn't call us to anything that he hasn't already done for us. So because of God's great love for us through Christ, through Christ denying himself and saying to the Father, not what I will, but what you will. Because of what Jesus has done, we can rest in that and we can serve him and live for him out of gratefulness for all he's done.